don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, Crypto Economy crew? Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And current orange number is at, uh, according to my eToro app here, is $9,900.48. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're uh, looks like we're kind of going sideways. So, you know, I don't think I'm going to do anything. I'm waiting to see, like, I'll, I'll buy, you know, and put in my, my position for the bull market when we have, like, a dip. Um, and uh, I don't see anything here yet on, the, on our eToro chart. It's looking still just going sideways. And maybe it doesn't, but if it breaks up through resistance, I'll probably go ahead and start uh, putting in my position here. But I am just sitting tight right now. We will see. Let me know if uh, y'all have any different strategies uh, and uh, don't forget to check out eToro. I've got that link in the show notes. Now, we are doing another fun read today. Uh, we are doing a historical one that is just epic, um, and it's one that I'm surprised I have not hit on the show before, and another one made available by the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. A huge thank you. If you, are, if you guys are not taking like a day out of the week, to go to the nakamotoinstitute.org and just like pick something out of their literature and read it, you're really missing out. So hopefully, hopefully I'm doing that for you. Uh, you know, that's kind of why this show is here. And we have got uh, a little bit of gold today with Nick Zabo's Bit Gold proposal, which is on the Nakamoto Institute. And it is a short one, but it's just, it's so cool to hear the thinking and the, the explanations of how to create trust or distribution and uh, like eliminate these third parties in a system that was a precursor to Bitcoin. And this was almost three years to the day. It's like three years and the 30, 20, 30, 30, it was like five days before the Bitcoin network launched, before we got the Genesis block. So it was basically three years before and Nick Zabo uh, released his BitGold proposal. And uh, so we are going to read through this one and just talk about how crazy, uh, all the crazy similarities and how interesting and the, the thinking around these problems was uh, in a space where, we, you know, you didn't really know whether this problem was solvable. Like, it had never been done before. This was a completely unique thing to tackle at the time and it's just really it's really fun to go through people's perspectives like nick zaba like all these cypherpunks who were working on this problem then and just see how they were thinking about it uh before there was essentially something to work from as the default position or as the default solution i guess you could say so before we jump into this one i just want to say another thank you to the nakamoto institute for hosting all of this awesome information so I can just go up here and read to my heart's content about all of this amazing stuff um, and also provide it uh, in audio for you guys. 
Uh, I am extremely sad that I somehow missed it by, like, I got my invite for the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute dinner uh, before the BitBlock Boom um, conference and then just didn't buy it that night. And like a day or two later, I just procrastinated. I was like, oh, good, I got an invite. And then in no time, I got an email that said they were full up and weren't letting anybody else in. And I was like, well, shit. So uh, here is my plea to the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute guys. If any of y'all listen to this, I would really love to uh, come out that night uh, before BitBlock Boom and hang out with y'all. So uh, if... If you can squeeze in one more person, let me know. Uh, that would make me very, very happy. I will be there that night uh, looking for something else to do. <laughs> and on that note, if anybody else is coming into town for BitBlock Boom, don't forget about my discount code CC. That'll get you 30% off those tickets. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Nick Zabo's fascinating proposal for BitGold published on December 29th, 2005. A long time ago, I hit upon the idea of bit gold. The problem, in a nutshell, is that our money currently depends on trust in a third party for its value. As many inflationary and hyperinflationary episodes during the 20th century demonstrated, this is not an ideal state of affairs. Similarly, private banknote issue, while it had various advantages as well as disadvantages, similarly depended on a trusted third party. Precious metals and collectibles have an unforgeable scarcity due to the costliness of their creation. This once provided money the value of which was largely independent of any trusted third party. Precious metals have problems, however. It's too costly to assay metals repeatedly for common transactions. Thus, a trusted third party, usually associated with a tax collector who accepted the coins as payment, was invoked to stamp a standard amount of the metal into a coin. Transporting large values of metal can be a rather insecure affair, as the British found when transporting gold across a U-boat-invested Atlantic to Canada during World War I to support their gold standard. What's worse? You can't pay online with metal. Thus, it would be very nice if there were a protocol whereby unforgeably costly bits could be created online with minimal dependence on trusted third parties and then securely stored, transferred, and assayed with similar minimal trust. Bit gold. My proposal for BitGold is based on computing a string of bits from a string of challenge bits using functions called variously client puzzle function, proof of work function, or secure benchmark function. The resulting string of bits is the proof of work, where a one-way function is prohibitively difficult to compute backwards. A secure benchmark function ideally comes with a specific cost, measured in compute cycles, to compute backwards. Here are the main steps of the BitGold system that I envision. 1. A public string of bits, the challenge string, is created. See step 5. 2. 
Alice on her computer generates the proof of work string from the challenge bits using a benchmark function. 3. The proof of work is securely timestamped. This should work in a distributed fashion with several different timestamp services so that no particular timestamp service need to be substantially relied on. 4. Alice adds the challenge string and the timestamped proof of work string to a distributed property title registry for bit gold. Here, too, no single server is substantially relied on to properly operate the registry. 5. The last created string of BitGold provides the challenge bits for the next created string. 6. To verify that Alice is the owner of a particular string of BitGold, Bob checks the unforgeable chain of title in the BitGold title registry. And 7. To assay the value of a string of BitGold, Bob checks and verifies the challenge bits, the proof-of-work string, and the timestamp. Note that Alice's control over her BitGold does not depend on her sole possession of the bits, but rather on her lead position in the unforgeable chain of title, the chain of digital signatures in the title registry. All of this can be automated by software. The main limits to the security of the scheme are how well trust can be distributed in steps 3 and 4, and the problem of machine architecture, which will be discussed below. Hal Finney has implemented a variant of BitGold called RPOW, Reusable Proofs of Work. This relies on publishing the computer code for the, quote, mint, which runs on a remote, tamper-evident computer. The purchaser of BitGold can then use remote attestation, which Finney calls the transparent server technique, to verify that a particular number of cycles were actually performed. The main problem with all of these schemes is that proof-of-work schemes depend on computer architecture, not just an abstract mathematics based on an abstract compute cycle. I wrote about this obscurely several years ago. Thus, it might be possible to be a very low-cost producer by several orders of magnitude and swamp the market with BitGold. However, since BitGold is timestamped, the time created as well as the mathematical difficulty of the work can be automatically proven. From this, it can usually be inferred what the cost of producing during that time period was. Unlike fungible atoms of gold, but as with collector's items, a large supply during a given period of time will drive down the value of those particular items. In this respect, bit gold acts more like collector's items than like gold. However, the match between this ex-post market and the auction determining the initial value might create a very substantial profit for the bit gold miner who invents and deploys an optimized computer architecture. Thus, BitGold will not be fungible based on a simple function of, for example, the length of the string. Instead, to create fungible units, dealers will have to combine different valued pieces of BitGold into larger units of approximately equal value. This is analogous to what many commodity dealers do today to make commodity markets possible. 
Trust is still distributed because the estimated values of such bundles can be independently verified by many other parties in a largely or entirely automated fashion. In summary, all money mankind has ever used has been insecure in one way or another. This insecurity has been manifested in a wide variety of ways, from counterfeiting to theft, but the most pernicious of which has probably been inflation. Bit gold may provide us with a money of unprecedented security from these dangers. The potential for initially hidden supply gluts due to hidden innovations in machine architecture is a potential flaw in bit gold, or at least an imperfection which the initial auctions and ex post exchanges of bit gold will have to address. And that concludes Nick Zabo's Bit Gold Proposal, published on December 29th, 2005, and again hosted by the Nakamoto Institute. That is at nakamotoinstitute.org. Again, I cannot stress this enough. They have an amazing collection of historical pieces and articles and essays breaking down all the key principles of economics and uh, the philosophy and the technology behind Bitcoin. Just, just a wonderful place to go to hit all of the really core ideas uh, that built this system from all the way back to things like the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange, like back in 1976, the, the very first public-private key cryptography systems, like all these kinds of things, just so much to dig into, just a wealth of knowledge. So definitely check those guys out. Now, before we dig into this proposal and we talk about how unbelievably... Uh, just, just fascinating the, the system that he thought up is and how closely it resembles um, uh, literally the Bitcoin system that actually solved this problem. Let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, the eToro Exchange. These guys are a cryptocurrency exchange. They've been around a long time in this industry, so they're trusted. They've uh, built up a huge uh, user base. They've got over 10 million users now. Uh, I've been using the app recently and loving it. Uh, I've been following the Bitcoin price with a different app for ages, and but they never had a candlestick chart. So like now eToro has immediately become my uh, go-to app just for checking the price because they have a candlestick chart, and I really like that's That's the view that I prefer, um, and it's the one I'm most familiar with. But one of the really neat things about their platform is that it's a social network on top of just being an exchange. So you can, you can actually watch the best traders and study their, their entire order history. I mean, you can literally just copy their trades if you want. It's just totally open. Uh, and they have like this news feed. So I was taking a break a little while ago and reading a post by a trader who shared an article by Pantera Capital that was saying BTC was currently way undervalued and it was going to be like uh, estimated a $300,000 per Bitcoin price in like 2022 I believe it was a uh, bunch of comments going back and forth about you know whether whether it made any sense or like what their theories were uh, and uh, I thought it was hilarious because a couple of XRP shills jumped in and added their two cent they're there too it's not just crypto twitter 
they're everywhere that there is social discussion and they were just talking about how uh, Bitcoin was going to zero and Ripple was going to take over the world. But uh, it's a really great place to discuss strategy and find other traders who know what they're talking about so you can build your own portfolio and you can trade 14 of the top cryptocurrencies, 13 of which any of you Bitcoin maximalists out there can bet against, which would have paid off wonderfully this year. So check out the link to eToro uh, in the show notes, and I also put it in the uh, Twitter post. So you can just go up, explore their platform. Uh, it takes no time at all. You don't have to do all the KYC stuff just to get up there and create an account. Uh, it's just like a couple of steps to create an account. You just have to do that before you deposit money. So you can go ahead and start uh, exploring uh, their platform and start trading with virtual money. You can get a, uh, just switch over to your virtual account and trade with fake money so you can get comfortable with it. Um, you know, see how your trading skills stack up against the rest of the community. So don't forget to check them out. That is eToro, E-T-O-R-O. So this is one of the most fascinating things to me, to be able to go through these precursors like uh, B-Money and Hashcash and reusable proof of work and uh, uh, BitGold, obviously here, um, and just kind of see their perspective. And I love, I love that this entire piece starts out with this quote. It's the second sentence, yes. The problem, in a nutshell, is that our money currently depends on trust in a third party for its value. And that's one of the most interesting things is that we're requiring, like the supply and demand side of this, the, the securing of the supply of all of our money is dependent on trusting someone else. This isn't about, you know, the ability to transact per se. This isn't about um, the ability to, even though that's deeply attached to this nature, it's about the fact that its value is not natural. Its value is dependent on a third party doing what they are supposed to do to make a good money. It's money as a service rather than money as a natural good. And I thought that was a really, I love that that's the, that's the problem. That is the problem here. It's not do we have uh, visa level uh, transactions. It's not do we have a really good and easy to use digital app for money. It's not, it's none of the surface problems. It's the core problem of how does it obtain and how does it keep, how does it secure its value? And uh, another quote says, precious metals and collectibles have an unforgeable scarcity due to the costliness of their creation. This once provided money the value of which was largely independent of any trusted third party. That value was obtained naturally in the market. And there was no trusted third party that could screw with the uh, the value of the metal they could they could screw with the value of gold or the scarcity of gold because of that unforgeable scarcity it was an unforgeable costliness if you haven't listened to shelling out uh, Nick Zabo's quintessential no questions asked you have to listen to it if you're in Bitcoin peace uh, you definitely should I will link to that in, into the show notes into the show notes in the show notes um, but <laughs> Uh, but there are problems with this, uh, the metals in, in this sense. He says they're too costly to assay metals repeatedly. And he's talking about like in normal transactions. And assay is A-S-S-A-Y. 
what that word means uh, and what he's talking about is verifying that this is in fact gold. This isn't painted lead. That it's the it's the verification that you're trading the actual natural monetary good. So uh, that's why we re- had to rely on coinage, which is another form of trust. Do we trust the institution? It stamps it because we can't verify at every single transaction. And again, that's another major piece of this puzzle is to verify its integrity. That's the verifiability element that's so crucial to Bitcoin and which is why the argument is so strong for the small blocks is that anyone can run a node because if you can't run a full node and verify all the way back to the proof of work that established each coin and you cannot verify the entire uh, uh, the the entire sequence of history for each coin and the entire audit of the Bitcoin system for how much exists versus the rules and how far we have come like with the block height and stuff if you cannot verify all of that information quickly well, then you run into the exact same problem as that uh, limited gold so so much in its um, in its trust is that you're trusting a third party to act as coinage. Like if you're just trusting the proof of work of the most recent blocks with the UT the current UTXO set, the current set of addresses that have Bitcoin balances, that's like trusting coinage. You're essentially trusting that the miners are coining actual Bitcoin, but you've not verified it for yourself. You don't know its integrity. You are trusting someone else knows its integrity. So uh, that's another really important element that he that I love that he addresses immediately at the beginning of this is like that's one of the big problems with metals is you cannot assay it uh, on an ongoing basis. It's too it's too much of a pain in the ass. And of course, obviously, you cannot pay online with a metal um and uh so so he comes up with this idea of using uh, uh kind of based off of uh the reusable proof of works of how finney and uh the the concept of proof of work which has been around for a while and they've been playing with it i love it's called client puzzle function i'd never heard that term proof of work function secure benchmark function uh he kind of uses benchmark function throughout the rest of this but uh the quote um, said that the benchmark function ideally comes with a specific cost measured in compute cycles. So that's, that's, you know, the basic idea of proof of work is that we can estimate exactly how much computing power it took to solve the, to find a solution to the proof of work problem, uh, which is in, in their, uh, which in Bitcoin is the difficulty Whereas in the bit gold system, he refers to it as a challenge bit. But that's essentially what it is. It's establishing the difficulty of the next proof of work stream. So the basic idea of this is very similar to Hashcash and uh, uh, Finney's RPOW in that the verifiable costs can be estimated uh, by essentially measuring the challenge string. Uh, like how difficult is it um, versus the... Uh, the cost of the computing power involved to find that solution. And, uh, and then he goes through his, the, the six, no, no, excuse me, the seven steps um, and ending with the ability to verify, that to assay the value of the string of Bitgold, that you would check and verify the challenge bits, the proof of work, and the timestamp. Now, three, or four, three and four, there's another quote, all of this can be automated by software. The main limits to the security of this scheme are how well trust can be distributed 
in steps three and four. Step three was the proof of work being timestamped, and that this should work in a distributed fashion, several different timestamp services, so no particular services being relied on. And then four, uh, that the challenge string and timestamp proof of work is added to a distributed property title registry, which actually links to one that we have, another one that we have read on the show, uh, the Secure Property Titles with Owner Authority, another great one that uh, was published back in 1998. Uh, we covered that one and talked all about how you could create digital property and a, uh, essentially a public registry system where only the owner uh, it has any capacity to actually edit that registry. And that's another really interesting, I'll, I'll link to that one in the show notes, because if you haven't uh, explored that one at all, another really great one to uh, dive into. And in this sense, the distributed property title registry is the blockchain. That's what that is. That's what the, that's what the blockchain is used for. It's to keep the entire history of uh, who the owner is, to enforce that ownership, and it is also the timestamp server, essentially. So with his, with his model, he kind of just was thinking, okay, well, we'll just distribute the timestamp server. We'll use a bunch of different ones that we don't have to uh, essentially trust any single timestamp server. But that still runs into a huge problem because you're still running a, you're still trusting some other computer to timestamp it. And if that's where you're trying to decide who's the next one in the challenge string, in the, in the string of challenges and solutions and challenges and solutions, well, then uh, obviously it's kind of the nature of uh, uh, trusting uh, someone else to do your verification for you is that the network can be Sybil attacked. Somebody could spin up, if this ever became immensely valuable, uh, somebody could spin up a lot of fake timestamp servers with you know no problem at all and then start screwing with how things are ordered or uh, uh, which transactions are actually accepted into this distributed property registry or in our case the blockchain but it's interesting because the system does still depend like whoever the owner of the bit gold is is the fact that they are in the lead position of the chain of title and that because they're you're using this one-way function to uh, prove these challenge bits, you can't redo it. Or, well, it has extremely high cost to redo these things. And, and that's, that's absolutely, that's the concept that Bitcoin relies on, just in a slightly different, uh, and not even that seriously different. There's one, there's like one or two major shifts um, conceptually from this that make the Bitcoin system possible. And the big one is in the challenge bits and the time stamping. Because rather than just, I mean, and he talks about it, that the main issue uh, of, this, of the scheme, aside from the fact that we're relying on the distribution of the timestamp server and the security and distribution of the uh, property title registry, again, both of these being the distribution and verification of uh, verifiability of the blockchain, when it comes to Bitcoin, but that the limitation with the advancement of computer architecture, because in this system, the challenge string was the actual token being exchanged. The string of bits was the proof of work. So there's an, uh, there's an issue that, like, if somebody created an incredibly um, powerful computer, that they could flood the market with a lot of bit gold. 
and it would be based on the limitations of computing that, and the computer architecture for the actual issuance of this thing. And he noticed um, and uh, essentially brought into the idea that they, might, that they would likely not be fungible because each individual bit with a different proof of work would have a different forgeable costliness. I mean, ex- excuse me, unforgeable costliness. So um, because of that, you know, an older coin might have been uh, created with a very small proof of work, but a newer coin might have an enormous proof of work based on like the challenge bits as things went forward. And it, it would actually be, and, and he kind of like recognized that this would make it more like collectibles rather than being able to um, make these things fungible like actual gold. And it would require a market to basically value these tokens like and group them together or maybe group together these bits, these, these uh, unforgeable bits uh, into the amount of value that they have. Like, so you could like group a bunch of small bits, uh, small uh, of these bit gold uh, strings together in order to be equal to the proof of work of a later bit that has a much higher proof of work. So you would run into a situation where you would have to have a market that um, would luckily, because you can actually estimate and compare the value of these two things, you know that bit A is roughly uh, a tenth of the proof of work of bit B, and you can put these things together and then value them based on the degree of their proof of work. But that's one of the main issues, and obviously fungibility, I think, despite the fact that it may have been made of created some sort of collectible and valuable token in some way, it still has a massive problem in that they are not fungible. And that's where, that's where the, uh, the main thing that Bitcoin changed, that the Bitcoin system, when Satoshi wrote the white paper and like coded out the Bitcoin system, was that the proof of work was actually separated from the token. And, uh, and, this, and this solved the same problem with the computer architecture. It solved the problem with fungibility. And uh, it helped solve the problem of the distribution of the timestamp server. So the difficulty adjustment was one of the major, the key innovations of the Bitcoin system because uh, it's enforced by every single person on the network that is assaying the token, that is analyzing and verifying this token, and they separated the proof of work from the actual token so that it could, it could perform a dual function rather than just the single one of creating the unforgeable costliness. So in Bitcoin, proof of work acts both as to reach consensus on the most recent timestamp because the proof of work is reliant on the last one, much like the challenge bit from the previous one. So it orders the transactions uh, in the chain and allows... Uh, allows a, an objective version of the timestamp server by not really trusting, you don't have to trust the timestamp, you trust the, the order of the proof of work stamps. And, uh, and it puts everybody on the same page with the title, with the registry, the property title registry, the blockchain, who's, who owns what, uh, which page of this blockchain are we on, what's the most recent version of it. Now we have a completely distributed way to pull that off because proof of work does that amazingly well. But then at the same time, that proof of work is still used as proof for the validity, like for valid issuance 
of the token, but the token is independent of the proof of work outside of its issuance. Outside of that, you can trade it. You don't keep the proof of work. Like you don't, you don't take the block header of whatever uh, block created, you know, Bitcoin A. You don't trade it around with the Bitcoin every time. The Bitcoin itself is just a token that is valid as long as you can go back and find the proof of work and it follows the consensus rules through, the, through its entire lifespan. So the proof of work no longer acts as the token itself, which is what Hashcash and Bitgold and reusable proof of work uh, proofs of work did with Halfinis. So, uh, and that's one of the most amazing things is that the proof of work still served the purpose of making it unforgeable. That there's still an immense cost to fake a Bitcoin, and then the difficulty adjustment. So when we have these huge advancements in computer architecture and ASICs and GPU miners, the difficulty adjustment of the network by, uh, by using the, this huge network for timestamps and ordering this registry, well, now we can use the timestamp to decide exactly how much work the next group uh, or the, the network has to perform to keep adding to this ledger, to keep issuing new Bitcoins, uh, these new tokens, in order to keep this thing stable, to act as a buffer between the vast changes in computer architecture, which as Abo recognized was a big problem to solve. And the difficulty adjustment in separating proof of work from the actual token solved that problem, solved the distribution of the title registry, and solved the distribution of the timestamp server. It's just fascinating to think that just, just, a, just a couple key changes made all the difference in this concept to build what was actually Bitcoin and created a independent property title registry, which again, property without, or securing property with uh, uh, owner authority um, is another, it's just a really great piece. I encourage you to go back and listen and or read that one. Again, that was on the Nakamoto Institute. All of those I actually read off of the Nakamoto Institute. The collection of Zabo's work up there is massive. And it's just, uh, and, and I love the Hasufly and Suzu uh, also have a really great piece. That's one of my favorite in their Skeptic's Guide to Bitcoin, how they talk about that Bitcoin is actually independent property. That's its uh, main use case. And... Uh, that one's a really another really great article. I guess I have to add that show notes. Show notes. The the list of stuff in the show notes is now getting really really long, uh, but just a really great one. Um, I sat down and read this uh, first thing this morning. And I was like, damn, I can't believe I never actually of all the things I read about the Bitgold proposal, I never actually went back and read the actual Bitgold proposal. The the one that he published to you know talk about the system and the concept behind it. And it's just, it's fascinating to see how close, how close all of this was for a decade before Satoshi finally filled in the gaps and made those couple of little tweaks and found the, found the perfect use for proof of work that still implemented what they knew had to be there, the unforgeable costliness, but without attaching it to the actual bit to the actual quote-unquote gold token that is uh, being exchanged in the system. And I just loved going through this. I 
geeking out on this shit is like why I do this show. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I don't think I have anything else in my notes to cover. Just a really fun piece of cypherpunk history to go through and see just how much work and uh, thought went into putting this thing together and what a brilliant system uh, that came out of it. Uh, I mean, the number of people that were working on this and just beating these ideas to death to figure out where all the weaknesses are. And now we have Bitcoin, which 10 years down the road is more secure than anybody could have ever imagined. Takes uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for just an hour's worth of security for any transactions or uh, the tokens on it that are secured. Just all the different pieces, the moving pieces and incentives in this system is just utterly brilliant. It's one of the most beautiful things I ever read when I first, excuse me, I ever read when I first stumbled upon it. And uh, Jesus, eight years odd, some eight odd years later, it still just fascinates me. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, breaking down some bit gold by Nick Zabo, uh, cypherpunk extraordinaire. <laughs> Another thank you to the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto Institute um, for making this easy to just go up and click on your literature tab and have myself a wonderful uh, after breakfast read. So uh, thank you to those guys. Do not forget to check out the nakamotoinstitute.org. And if any of my listeners are not following uh, Nick Zabo, I don't, I don't know. You should just unfollow me or follow Nick Zabo. So uh, that would, that'll be it. That'll be it. We'll close this one out here. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to check out the eToro Exchange, our new sponsor. Uh, it's been really great, and I spent a good solid week researching these guys and I'm really happy with the exchange. I'm glad I have somebody uh, uh, real serious to promote on the show. So definitely check those guys out. I will have their link in the show notes um, so you can set it up or download your app. Uh, again, takes hardly any time at all. And that will be with the uh, other episodes that I will link to. That'll be Nick Zabo's Shelling Out. Let's see, uh, Securing uh, Property with Owner Authority. Uh, I'll do that one. And then I'll add in uh, Hasufly and Suzu's piece on uh, independent property rights and how uh, and exactly what it is that Bitcoin is challenging. What's what's Bitcoin's actual competitive advantage? So uh, those are really really great pieces to follow up with this one and dig a little bit more both in Sabo's work and in the idea of Bitcoin as an independent uh, property registry, essentially. So. Thank you guys for listening. This is The Crypto Economy with Guy Swan. That's me. And this is where you will learn all about the cypherpunk history, the, the, all the fascinating concepts and technology that culminated in, God, I don't even know how much you would call it, probably since the late 70s, uh, like 40 years of work that went into these concepts and built the foundation for a secure way to communicate value in the digital world and that's what's happening we've it has been invented and there's no going back and we are heading uh like just like on a bolt of lightning into the crypto economy where i think 
where I think we have the possibility of a future where we can get our privacy back, we can get our sovereignty, our liberty, where we can be in control of our own lives because of this technology and this new ecosystem that is being built. And this is where you're going to hear and learn all about it. This is the Crypto Economy Podcast with Guy Swan. Don't forget to share this out with everybody else you know who's peering down the rabbit hole and wants to see this crazy new world being built. I will be here to tell you all about it. Thank you guys so much. Don't forget to follow at The Crypto Economy, and I will catch you all next time. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>